0: or my friend chris and i talk about a couple of movies around the theme of our choosing chris how are you doing today
1: doing great john how are you today
0: i'm doing all right this is going to be an exciting episode for because a it's an episode and b we have uh we have our very first guest on the podcast from koheleth and the well at the time of this recording newly announced by the time this comes out it will be several months old the youtube channel uh, channel minus six jeremy hunt
2: hey there how's it going guys
1: Hey, we should also mention probably that he is also our bandmate in our extremely popular—I uh, say that sarcastically—noise experimental project VIP.
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, if we actually want to like go through all of uh, the, all of Jeremy's credits and especially how they relate to us, we'd be here for a while. So
1: <laughs> we are all interconnected, Dungeons and Dragon partners, noise yep. band people, indeed, buddies all, across the country. Yep. It's all very incestuous. More or That's or less, how we yeah. like it here. So uh, yep. that's how we like it here in Cinema Duel. <laughs> this was my theme this week, so I'll kind of kick off what it is. Um, it is ostensibly horror, uh, as we are recording this podcast on November 1st, but we decided to do a little bit of a twist with it, so... What the real theme of the episode is, is movies that scared us. So uh, for whatever reason, they are all ostensibly horror films, but uh, there was just something about these films. They're not our favorite. They're not what I I, I would think any of us would consider the best horror film ever made. But they are a particular horror film that for one reason or another, which I'm sure we'll get into in the discussion, uh, terrified us uh, at at some point. So that's kind of what we're hitting today. Anything to add to that before we dive into the first film?
0: No, I, uh, I I like that you mentioned that this was like I think we'll probably title this horror as as an episode. But the I like your mention of the movies that really terrified us as being somewhat distinct from necessarily picking horror because as a kid, like movies that scared me included stuff like Fantasia and Little Mermaid. So like, right? It definitely, you know, we could <laughs> tell those we could tell those stories for sure. Um, that could be interesting. But uh, I think you know it's it's. At the time we're recording, again, it's it's Halloween season, and as uh, definitely our uh, f- our friend and guest uh, Jeremy is uh, very dialed into horror-related things. Uh, Indeed. So, felt like a nice uh, a nice way to sort of welcome our guest into uh, this podcast by you know pitching something at him that's directly relevant to his
2: interests. I appreciate it. No, I've, I. Uh... I'm a huge fan of the genre, so it's fun to jump in with you guys on this, for sure.
1: Yeah, and it acts as a nice capper for me, because I just finished uh, watching and reviewing. Uh, I did 31 total for the marathon. I did 34 in total for the 6th annual Hoop- Hooptober marathon, which is done on Letterbox.com. Uh, That's impressive. So it- it, it, it was hard. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if you're not familiar with that, um, it is a marathon run on Letterbox. There's a gentleman there by the name of El Cinemonster, and every year he um, challenges you to watch and review 31 films in the October Halloween season. The catch is, is that there are rules and criteria that you need to meet with your films. So, for example, uh, this year uh, six films had to be before 1966. Six films had to be released in a year that ended in a six. Six films needed to feature the work of six prominent figures in horror, including Carl Rimbaldi, um, including Jack Pierce uh, and and folks like that. Two had to be women directors. One had to be from Mexico. They had to be from six countries, six decades. So there's a whole kind of thing around it. Um, None of the films that we're going to talk about uh, were in my list. So it was nice kind of Uh, after dinner drink to kind of finish that and then sit and unwind with these delightful uh, uh, (laughs) purely fluff (laughs) films. (laughs) The first of Uh, which is probably going to be the hardest to talk about. So why don't we jump into that, which is my pick, the 2008 French film Martyrs.
0: It seems like it's probably a good opportunity for us to mention that the movies, especially Martyrs, but even throughout the rest of the episode, there's going to be a lot of talk uh, conversations around uh, violence and terrible things done to people that are kind of required for us to talk about due to the nature of the movies. But yeah, uh, yeah so consider this a content warning for nasty shit and so uh <laughs> if uh, if that's something that you're not uh as up on then maybe this might not be the episode for you that's fine
1: this stuff gets a little bit dicey i would also say spoiler warnings spoiler particularly with with Martyrs, because one of the things that I really want to talk about is the surprise of the plot as it kind of weaves its way through different kind of genres and expectations. So we are going to spoil these films. None of them are particularly new, so there shouldn't be that big of a problem. But Martyrs uh, was my pick. 2008 film uh, written and directed by Pascal Logier, a guy who really made his kind of bones with this film. It was part of the kind of the new wave of French horror that hit in the early aughts, along with the Films like Inside, which is a film I still have not had the stomach to watch. Um, It's Sort of a response to the torture porn that had been coming out at the same time, too, particularly Hostel and, and the Eli Roth films. But what's different about Martyrs is, and the thing that particularly terrified me about it and terrifies me Still, I've only ever seen the film twice. I saw it the first time I watched it, uh, which was kind of familiarize myself with something from the scene, and I watched it again yesterday <laughs> as response to it. That's how uh, much the film has kind of disturbed me, so... Uh, Very briefly, it is the story about a a young girl in the 70s um, named Lucy, who we meet having escaped from some terrible thing that has happened in a dilapidated building. She is bruised, she is battered and beaten, she is uh, very young. Uh, obviously in distress. Uh, we don't really know what had happened, uh, but she is, she has escaped. She has gone into a home where she befriends a young girl named Anna. Um, and that is kind of the first setup of the film. This woman escapes this brutal situation and is, and is uh, raised in an orphanage where we start to see her being terrorized by this misshapen demonic figure. And that's all we know. Uh, cut to 15 years later, We are introduced to a very nice family uh, that is having breakfast in the countryside in this kind of um, of out-of-the-way, very nice house, and the doorbell rings, and uh, it is Lucy with a shotgun who proceeds to, spoiler alert, kill everyone in the home. From there, I don't want to get too much into details quite yet, but obviously uh, she believes that these are the people responsible for her imprisonment when she was a kid. Uh, Anna is there to help her out. Uh, to understand what is happening to Lucy, what is the story with the gnarled demon that continues to terrorize her, and what happens when certain things are revealed about the family, about Lucy's past, and about what is in store for Anna. That is kind of it in a nutshell. The term martyrs is used um, very specifically uh, to denote something that kind of occurs. We'll hold off on that until the end of the film. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about, I wanted to ask you guys about, was this is obviously a very hard film to stomach. And I think one of the things that I learned about it and the thing that I know about myself when it comes to horror, as much as I love horror, I am really drawn to horror that is in no way, shape, or form um, in the realm of possibility. So (laughs) give me monsters, give me ghosts, give me vampires, give me werewolves, give me aliens, give me things that cannot be... Um, and I am thrilled with that. I'm, I'm thrilled with the taste of the unknown, with with the thrill of imagination in its most kind of twisted and violent forms. Um, I am terrified of things that are entirely possible and in the realm of the nature of uh, humanity in its most base form. And that is a lot of what we get in Martyrs. Uh, it is terrifying to see the things happen, but it's not the actions that are terrifying to me, although they are particularly brutal, it's just the fact that uh, the reason why these things are happening is is so easy to conceive of people having. And that's the thing that even watching it again yesterday um, still terrifies me. So my question to you guys kind of jumping out is... <laughs> Besides what were your initial thoughts? I think this was definitely the first time for both of you. But uh, uh, where do you land on the violence and and the thing? Th- and is there anything that, that Pascal Vaudier is trying to say with the movie?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, could you finish watching it,
1: first of all? Because I, yes. I don't know if both of you could. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I, fi- I finished it. I have so many thoughts. Some of them track with the fact that I lived in France for a few years And so there are elements of this that I'm looking at through the lens of the understanding of culture, French culture that I gained while I was there. And then there's, you know, then there's just the, like you already alluded to it, the brutality of what you're seeing that seems sadly and sort of condemningly all too believable from a human uh, behavioral standpoint. Um, You know, when the reveal, and I don't know when we want to jump into the specifics of where it eventually goes, but the reveal of what's actually happening you know, I guess two thirds of the way through whenever that hits. And then the, the sort of the final reveal at the end, um, this was one of those horror movies that, that, that does what I both love and hate about horror films is that it made me feel culpable in what was happening. And that, (laughs) and that when, when it's revealed like, Oh, this is why they're doing everything for a minute for a split second. I'm like, Oh, I, I kind of want to know, I kind of want to know what's, 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 you know happening what what it is that they're trying to get at and as soon as i had that thought i was like no this is deeply this is deeply wrong and deeply evil so um, so yeah that was those were kind of my initial thoughts
1: well that's why i think like as, as much as i know i'm probably never going to watch this movie again there right. is some real brilliance in the way that lagier kind of Constructs the film because first there's the what happened to this young girl. Then it's yep. fifteen years later. Holy crap! Did this girl just go crazy and blow away this entire family? <laughs> um, and then there's the. But then it becomes another question, and that question is what is the creepy thing that's following her? And then we'll we'll jump into spoilers when we finally find out what's going on. Yeah. That uh, the family not only in fact was the family that abducted her, but mm-hmm. they have a nefarious plan that involves the the. T- torturing of, they have found that young women are the most susceptible, the torturing of young women to get them to a state of martyrdom, uh, which in this case is taken from the meaning of being a witness to the afterlife, because these are people that want to know what happens after you die. Yeah. So they are very viciously torturing this these poor women, uh, of which Ana then becomes the, the most recent and final um, uh, subject, uh, to, to get a glimpse into what the afterlife is like. It's positively brutal, but what Lugier does to keep switching the question to what happened to is the monster real or not? Is the family evil or not? What's in the basement? How are they going to do this? What is Anna going to reveal at the end? You know, Mm uh, it's, it's a wickedly clever, labyrinth story construction uh, that is just brutal in how culpable it makes us, because to your point, you despise everything that's going on, but you're going to keep watching because you want to know you're made just as complicit because you want to know what the answer is going to be at the end as well. And I think the ending is just devastating in how it handles both the people in the film and you as the viewer, Mm. uh, how you respond to what that answer uh, is revealed to be.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) And that was a lot to take in. Uh, I I need to take a breath, John. So uh, where are you at with this movie? I'll
0: tell my uh, experience of watching it, which was I watched it on an iPad as all uh, filmmakers intend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and after the initial well I guess not not the very first but the the scene where she she blows away the family after watching that I made the in- immediate decision and I don't usually do this but I immediately pulled up a plot synopsis because I had heard sort of about this movie in hushed tones of people talking about this movie being like the real deal like if you don't want to mess around then you, you watch this so I said it was just, when I saw that as like not even just the climax of the movie, but like the introduction to the movie. To start at such a high level of brutality, I I was not willing to uh, let myself be surprised by uh, what was waiting for me. And so when I quickly scanned through to see what, the, what was going to happen in the movie, I saw a particular word. Um, which we'll get to eventually and decided immediately that I would watch the rest of the movie uh, taking notes on the iPad and having the movie play in a tiny thumbnail in the corner (laughs) of the screen. And you know what? I don't regret it. Not for an instant. And (laughs) at the moment of climactic uh, torture, uh, I straight up skipped that because I was like, I know what happens. I don't need... I don't need that. Yeah, you mentioned that this was a response to Hostel, um, or that this that kind of that this genre of horror is sort of existing in the, in sort of a relationship with a movie like Hostel, and that my response to Hostel was, I don't want to watch this again. But also, this is not like it's disgusting and gross and it's like visceral. But like I'm, th- I feel that th- I was much more like uncomfortable for sure and disturbed. But like the just the actual seeing of something as opposed to like the suggestion of it sort mm-hmm. of changes i think the reaction where i'm not reacting to it the way i would in a typical horror movie yeah i suspect that i'm guessing that might be in, like in jaws you barely see the shark that kind of stuff right. and it's like the most terrifying thing ever so i'm sure we'll get into it when we start talking about the ending more but the i think i had to sort of get over the way that they construe construe the concept of martyr. Because it's it's set up a bit differently than my understanding of it. And I'm no expert, but, like, I always thought that martyrs had to be, like, for a particular cause. Like, they were willing to stare death in the face because it was in the service of something they believed in. And that's certainly... And Anna's uh, experience is certainly not something that she has chosen by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Even though... I don't think it actually corresponds to a common understanding of the word martyr. Like they do sort of explain like within the logic of the film, I think they actually do a job of expl- like setting up in this world, this is what this means. And we're going to torture people. I, I again, I think the excuse of it has to be young women uh, is kind of flimsy. There is a logic within the movie. I think that makes sense. I think the only my as far as the narrative stuff, my only, I guess the only thing that I would have liked to have seen in the movie and not from a distaste for violence perspective, but I would have liked the movie to more closely follow Anna from the beginning. Um, Cause it kind of switch. It kind of goes back and forth a little bit in the beginning between Anna and Lucy, but at a certain, at a very clear point in the movie, the it unequivocally switches to Anna's position. And I feel like, if we were centered on Anna the whole time where she's trying to help her friend and never sure what's going on and you don't ever get to see what it, um, you don't ever get to see Lucy's perspective and actually see what's going on until Anna goes into the basement and sees the reveal and sees, oh, Lucy was telling the truth the whole time. To me, I think that would have made a potentially stronger narrative or at least one that I could have like held onto for longer. Cause I was, I was actually very surprised when, again, spoiler alert, uh, Lucy dies fairly early in the movie and we switch over to Anna for the rest.
1: This is a film that plays the game of switching quite a bit, and I think that's the intent. It wasn't my impression as to what a martyr was either, but I think part of what I like about the film is just how incredibly twisted the people who have come up with this concept are that, to my mind, the way that I was able to kind of logic that quibble away was well they're, they're they're so twisted in their in their desires and their means that, of course they're twisting what an actual martyr is as well which is why it doesn't really succeed ever and even when it does succeed you know with 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 Anna they're they're screwed in the end anyway so it, it for for me just the, the the concept of what a martyr is, I haven't done enough research to know uh, whether or not it, you know, to be acting as a witness to something is is a common meaning for martyrdom or or, or for a martyr. I, I don't know. But the logic within the film does work for me. Uh, it is horribly brutal. One of the things that maybe I should clarify. So, yeah, I, I, my understanding was the French kind of new wave of horror in the aughts was I don't want to say a response to. Um, Like the stuff that that was going on with with like hostile and and the torture porn as in we don't like it. Let's here's our response to it. It was almost they were, you know, they kind of came up and were inspired by the same time and very much in the vein of Jaws. I think films of this nature were a reaction to the subtlety where they wanted to push the violence and push the gore. You know to a, a point that is distasteful and and leaves you somewhat culpable the one thing that I, that I would argue and, and and maybe ask you guys particularly if you've seen some of the other common examples of torture porn is I don't see this really as torture porn uh, b- because the 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 logic of the film keeps it keeps bringing you into it which is which is terrible which is not to say that the torturing that goes on in the film isn't utterly despicable and the, John, you brought up a great point about the the fact that, you know, they they had to kind of narratively explain why it was young women that they were using for it and I do feel it is very flimsy but I kind of have to chalk that to 2008, the woman in distress is still a very uh, uh, popular kind of cliche to fall back on, cliche though it is. Um, I am thankful though that they had such incredibly strong performances from both Lucy and Anna, who I thought were incredible in the roles.
0: Yeah, I would, I would agree. I thought the, I thought the two leads of the movie were, were fairly effective in, in what they were trying to go for. So no real, I don't think there was a lot of complaints on the acting side. I don't think.
2: Yeah. And going, going back to um the, the martyr thing for just a second. Uh, and, I'm certainly not an expert on French culture by any means, but I do wonder if some of this comes into play. Um, The understanding because France is such a post uh, spiritual post Christian country. I mean, one of the things that I experienced when I was there was just, and this was when I was in high school and then I studied in a French university for a year there, just talk uh, from different professors and different teachers just talking about how really faith or belief in supernatural things or you know afterlife or whatever of any kind was often viewed as is really more of a mental crutch than anything that you know it's it's th- this life is what we have we you know live in the here and now the philosophy uh you know the the, the philosophies that have been handed down from you know uh the experts so for a film like this to to even go into this area um, thematically from specifically from uh, a French filmmaker and the storytellers and the creators, I think is pretty fascinating.
0: Well, and that that tracks for me because like even though it sort of set weird, the approach that the villains were taking, uh, they did, they were fairly like, I did remember there being a line about them talking about the, that this was not just a religious thing, like right. they were specifically doing it, sort of separately from the religious right. uh, conception of of martyrdom. Which, again, that's why I think within the the logic of the film, I think that's why, like, it more or less
1: uh, more or less tracks. Yeah, it's interesting. I I didn't find a re- it, with their intent. I think there's purposely not a religious kind of bent to it all. One of the things mm-hmm. that I found yeah. interesting was it's just a bunch of what looks to be old, rich, white people.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's definitely, you know, played for a purpose in the film.
2: Yeah, it de- I mean, it definitely plays like a commentary on uh, some sort of a class and or power struggle, for sure. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, because they're picking up those girls from the from the orphanage, right? Like, that's like the absolute opposite end of the you know class structure for them right yeah
1: i find this film really hard to kind of just watch and shuffle away because i i think it does have a lot more on its mind Mm -hmm. uh than than what it's kind of revealing at first glance why don't we why don't we talk about um i want to talk really quickly about the ending um, before we jump on because we've got two uh, we got two other films to talk about it's gonna be a packed <laughs> house for this episode but yeah. the, the one thing I just wanted to kind of point out and i'm I'm interested if these things if anything stood out for you guys as well watching it this time the thing that really hit home for me was this is gonna be weird to say was the humanity that he injects in the film I think the most powerful moment for me in the movie is when Anna goes and she finds, so, um, really quickly, um, Lucy does die. It turns out that the uh, demon that has been um, hurting her and chasing her throughout her entire life is her own guilt at leaving behind. There was another person when she escapes. There was another person in chains uh, and she could not save. She was you know, young and a child and she had to save herself. She did. But the guilt of that survivor who was there haunted her and that was the apparition that kept coming and, and ultimately causes her to kill herself we think that that's the end of the story, that this was all entirely the deluded guilt of Lucy until a brick falls from the chimney. And, uh, there's a secret passage that Anna walks down and finds, uh, the hidden rooms and finds another young woman chained up, uh, who looks like she has been there for a very long time. Uh, and this was probably the, 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 The moment of the film for me was Anna's. Anna has been positioned as the caretaker the entire time in the film. And the sequence where she brings the other victim out of the dungeon and bathes her and just tries to offer her comfort was heartbreaking to me this time to the point of, I mean, I didn't cry, but I definitely teared up. This is... It's, it's there's such a sense of, with everything else that is so inhumane and base going on in the film, here you have this her, her, horrific moment that is couched in this beautiful, just kind of, I just want to help. And that sequence is the key for me to why, at least in the film the whole their whole concept of what a martyr is and how that relates to Anna works because of her role as a caretaker, as her role to kind of see past and just, despite everything that's happening, she just wants to provide comfort. She just wants to help. And this sequence where she gives this person a bath, um, it kind of unlocked the film for me in a way that the first viewing didn't hit. and mm. it was it was it was stunning for me
0: sorry just just the mention of it brought back the the visual of i think it was when they were trying to remove the the metal uh that had been sort of like nailed uh into her head yes yeah it's
1: it's it's horrific
0: (laughs) yeah well and it's because of course with her they do and again i skipped the actual worst part of this movie so you'll have to tell me how it compares but uh but the just even the, the the makeup of all the absolutely devastation unleashed on this person, uh, is impressive only in the sense that like, it is horrifying to imagine. And yeah. I can't imagine having ever felt less comfortable in my life. It, yeah, uh, it's, it's a rough one.
2: No, I, yeah, it's, yeah, I was not expecting <laughs> any of that. Uh, but I'm with you, Chris, in that I it, it hit me the same way, even just on the first and only viewing that I've I've had of the film. In terms of, it provides a, a sort of a respite of tenderness and humanity in the midst of everything else that's going on. That was both welcome and you know tragic, of course. And yeah. then everything that happens after that, and the you know how sh- how that woman dies, and yeah, it, yeah, the whole balancing act that uh, the director achieved in this film. Is is really remarkable to me, uh, and I'm and I'm with you. I mean, to me, this film kind of falls into uh, sort of infamous company with Requiem for a Dream. Yes, and that and that it's yeah. it's a film that I'm glad is too strong of a word. It, I, I appreciate that I've watched it, but I don't know that I'll ever need to revisit it. Very much like Requiem for a Dream, and so. But that being said, there is such a level of skill involved in how they, he just alternates between, I mean, you're, you already alluded to it. I mean, it's a, it's a mystery film. It's a revenge film. It, there's, you know, sort of a creature aspect to it with the, with the haunting of the the demon to then, you know, what comes after. Yeah. It's just, I, I don't know that I've seen a horror movie. I, I'd have to do some real thinking to, Think of a comparison in terms of just the shifting of tones and the way that he manages to still make each one of those work.
1: So let's let's briefly jump to the end. Um, so super spoilers for what happens at, at the end. But I'm dying to know, John, before we talk about the ending. And and, and I'm really interested in your guys interpretation of it, particularly because of your backgrounds. But, John, what part did you skip? <laughs> I need to know. Was it the flaying alive of, of Anna? Uh-huh. 100% it was the flying. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw the word and I was like, okay, I know that that happens. And n- noth- nothing that happens in that sequence can be
1: so important that it's worth me watching. So interestingly, that's the one that, that's the one that goes off camera. <laughs> For real? Yeah. That's the yeah. off camera piece. Uh, uh, I mean, well, I, you, you, see I, here, you see the aftermath. You I mean. do see the aftermath, and it is very reminiscent of I, – I, I was reading a Reddit page somewhere, and, and, and someone was trying to tie this movie to Clive Barker's Hellraiser universe, mm. which is complete and utter batshit bullshit. But I, <laughs> I get it from the makeup job that they do on her as she is flayed. She kind of looks like a Cenobite, and it's it, – or, or she looks like Mr. Body from the 70s with the – you know, he used to wear the skin-tight outfit with the organs <laughs> and the bones. Um, it's a great makeup job. Uh, but that is the one scene that is done off camera. <laughs> John.
0: Well, that, I mean, I feel, of course, silly, but I also <laughs> think that that is fantastic. And I am laughing on the inside. Well, but <laughs>
2: I, I, I will say, though, there's that there's that scene. OK, so bef- John, did you see did you see her uh, in in like the vat or the tub afterwards? Did you see I think so. Where when she, she like, whispers. When she whispers. Yeah. She whispers
1: the, whispers?
0: Yeah. Okay. I think that's where I came back in. Okay. Where she whispers. Because I've seen. Because I. Because I remember everything that happens after that. Because okay.
2: there is. I mean, you're right, Chris. The the flame does. You don't see the actual thing, but that shot of her as they're like putting her in the, the metal vice or whatever yes. and they like lift her body i mean that's brutal i mean it, that it is brutal
1: she is I fully mean, nude and when i say fully nude she has no skin
2: yeah i mean it's it's horrible it's it's yeah it's uh disturbing uh at a, to a deep degree so i don't i mean you can laugh john if uh, but i i don't i don't blame you for for skipping past that because
1: i mean there are just so many scenes of punching and brutality that I, I I will probably never watch this film again. <laughs> that
2: that's actually something I wanted to bring up in terms of like comparisons with like hostile and I'm a I always wrestle with the term torture porn anyway, just because it's one of those ones where I get what people are getting at, but it also feels like if, if we're not careful it gets lazy. So I don't know with like like hostile, some of the later saw things. In comparison to all of those. Yeah, the sequences of her in the basement just getting pummeled, they're not super graphic,
1: but they are deeply disturbing. Like it's, well, they're it's... not filmed in, in a way to make you like hostile in those other films and the Saw films in particular. That that kind of got the label of torture and porn. Yeah. They're there because you want to see the gratuitous gore and violence. Yes, yes. When you see it here, you it's the last thing you want to see as you're watching it. Yeah. It it, it it is done purposely to make you regret what you were seeing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that whole sequence, and then I I think it's during that moment or during that sequence where I'm assuming it's a purposeful uh, allusion to the um, the the old classic Joan of Arc film, but there's a moment where she like looks up and her face is cast in the light Yeah. and they hadn't shown, I can't remember if in the credits they show Joan of Arc, but I don't think at that point in the film that they have used Joan of Arc as a example of a martyr. And, uh, and so when that, that shot, hit i was like oh man this is again it was just a level of craft where in spite of or despite what i was seeing i just thought that's a that's a really well done moment yeah to to allude to that
1: no it, it is definitely taken I I mean there are there are a lot of weird homages but there is an homage to the film yeah you're talking about the the um the passion of Joan of Arc
2: yes the, yes, is yes. the
1: one from the 20s and uh, yeah. yeah it it is a direct kind of homage to that piece done for an entirely different purpose but yeah it it, it definitively recalls that
2: yeah okay
0: can I bring up the part of the ending that I actually liked and is actually my favorite part of the movie
1: <laughs> please do let's talk about the ending whole hog go for it
0: yeah so after anna is uh flayed she brings the i don't remember the, who's the what's the title they give to the to the lady that's sort of running
2: the whole deal i, I don't know if she actually has a name i think okay she's just like so, the old woman or something
0: yeah the older lady that's sort of running this whole experiment in charge uh she she well, she can't, I mean, obviously move, but the older lady sort of walks up to her and Anna whispers into her ear something, um, <clears throat> which the whole reason they've been doing these experiments is to to see, or experiments, the whole reason they've been torturing young women, let's yeah. be clear, yeah, um, has been to, uh, to try and see if these people will uh, catch a glimpse of what exists after death. Um, and... They have not had a lot of success, it seems like. Uh, and uh, Anna whispers into this old woman's ear. And then it sort of like transitions into this scene where all of these high class uh, white French people are gathered in the upstairs part of the house. And someone comes and says that uh, Anna was martyred and that she told the old lady uh, what she saw. And so shortly the old lady will come out and uh uh and reveal to us what it was that she was told and that Anna had survived initially but has now passed and so the moment in this movie that I actually really like and makes me at least happy that I watched this once was (laughs) the the guy who does the announcing goes up to the office and says to the old, knocks on the door and says to the old woman, are you ready to come out and tell everyone what you heard? And I might get the wording of this wrong, but she says something to the effect of, do you ever doubt uh, uh, what, or do you ever doubt about what you believe is going to happen? Um, and he's confused, doesn't really understand the question. And uh, she seems kind of a bit like shell shocked, like not entirely sure what's going on. But then she tells him, you have to keep doubting. And then she puts a gun in her head, or a gun in her mouth and blows her brains out. And so no one, she does not tell anyone what Anna told her. And so the entire experiment uh, as it's been created is is lost and no one gets to know. And the reason why I like that. I mean I generally don't advocate for people to commit suicide. Um, but that was that was when I made an exception on I was like, okay, whether or not regardless like uh, in any regardless of how you interpret the ending, she's dead and I feel good about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then it does actually leave the possibility of a couple different interpretations. One is that she's eager to get to the afterlife now that she knows what it is or B the possibility that what Anna told her was there's absolutely nothing and that she's just come to realize the horrors of everything she's dedicated her life to presumably and decides that she can't deal with it. And so, you know, chooses to, uh, to not face the consequences of it. So do you guys have any particular thoughts about what you think the ending is?
1: I do. So I was actually on first watch, Totally on board with the second piece that the reason why she kills herself is because to, to, to know, regardless of what the knowledge is, is so self-defeating that it is the it is the doubt. It is the uncertainty that keeps that is there to keep people you know alive, uh, that that just kills it for her and that and therefore she kills herself because there's no reason left to. Live at that point. It's it's been it's almost like spoilers. She got spoiled. I did see another interpretation. The ultimate spoiler yes, warning. It's an ultimate spoiler. <laughs> I, I I did read another interpretation. <laughs> I was uh, reading into it last night. So if you take into account the whole film, including the closing credits, which is uh, you know home movies, but they're uh, uh, ostensibly Anna's memories of her time with Lucy, which is when she was the most happy. Um, There is a very subtle kind of homoerotic kind of lesbian undertone. You're led to believe that she and Lucy are also lovers and or that she's at least in love with Lucy and it's the cause of a lot of um, strife and potential abuse at the hands of her parents and her, which is kind of brought up briefly. But One of the interpretations that I heard was that there is nothing except that you are granted a view of the life you have led. Uh, And the life that she had led was one of love for Lucy. So when she tells the woman that, and the woman realizes that her entire life has just been spent in the pursuit of knowledge of something that is ultimately worthless because it is your actions in this life that define you. And her actions in this life had been nothing but the torture of women. That there was no reason to that she was already doomed from the start just by the intent of what she was trying to do, uh, and I think it's an interesting. I I I think it's an interesting piece that kind of ties into my philosophy personally, which is, I I I have been very forthright in my knowledge of I I I was raised Christian. I've had various crisis of faith regarding you know my belief and, and 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 with my family I have gone back and forth and ultimately while I I, I, I do still have a certain amount of faith and I, I do believe in spirituality um, I ultimately am also resigned to the fact that I just don't know and it's that uncertainty of not knowing that causes me to think that the actions that I do in this life are what matter the most and afterlife means nothing if I am not good and whole, In this life, so I try to just be as decent and as nice as I can. And when you are not doing that, it goes completely against the whatever afterlife may hold for you, anyway. And I think that kind of third way that the film kind of positions what she sees, uh, for me, kind of reinforced kind of what I believe, anyway. And I think it's interesting. I want to hear what you guys think, if, because I, I feel you can take it in so many multiple ways that it could, it could certainly reinforce multiple viewpoints on, on, on faith and the afterlife and spirituality.
2: I, I have to assume it's intentional. Maybe it's not, but I, I, I feel like it's, it walks that line of being um, uncertain or nebulous enough that, depending on what you bring to it, you're probably going to get that out of it so to speak.
1: We should probably also mention at this point that you are bringing to it a, uh, a near completed pursuit of a PhD in theology, if I'm not mistaken. So <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, Part way through. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I got a, I got a little ways to go. Got to write the, that, you know, that little thing called a dissertation. I, I wrestled with it. I, I wrestled with it a ton just because I thought, okay, what, it, 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 you know, it, did she reveal something that then drives the old woman crazy? um you know leading to the suicide did she reveal like you know i think john you said like there's th- maybe there's nothing and and she just decides to end it all you know after seeing everything that she's done to to uh you know countless scores of women supposedly based on you know the hints that are dropped throughout the the movie but um part of me wants to think that there that he's hinting at something more is the way that uh, Anna is shot or Anna is shot in the, in the, the vat and just sort of the look sort of the beatific sort of look on her face, like the idea that she's seeing visions or that sort of thing. And, and and that's probably the part two where I alluded earlier that I was like, man, I feel really culpable on this right now because like, I want to know, I want to know what she's seen. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, there's there's a part of me that feels like maybe maybe there is, you know, a hint of something more the supernatural, the afterlife, whatever you want to call it. But then, uh, uh, yeah, the 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 way that the woman ends it all, the old woman definitely throws a wrench into like maybe maybe there's nothing.
1: If, if only any of us had the heart to watch this movie again, we could ask more questions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is what? probably as good enough a time as any to wrap it up.
2: Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Jeremy, I believe you've got our next pick, so why don't you take it away? All righty. Uh, I chose a movie that's from one of my all-time favorite uh, film directors, at least one of my favorite film directors working today, uh, Scott Derrickson. It is uh, the 2012 movie Sinister. Uh, Funny enough, similar to Chris and his uh, pick with Martyrs, I've only seen Sinister twice. Uh, I saw it in theaters when it first came out, and then... uh, It so unnerved me after that first viewing that uh, I never got around to seeing it again until about a week ago when Scott actually came to Fuller, um, where I'm in school, and did a screening of it uh, just in time for Halloween, so... Watched the movie a second time uh, and then uh, there was some some nice little Q&A with him afterwards that was illuminating for me in certain ways. So yeah, so that's that's my choice. Um, Basic plot kind of of the film, basic concept is uh, you're following a true crime writer named Ellison uh, Oswalt and his family, his wife Tracy, and they have uh, two kids, Trevor and Ashley. And uh, they have recently moved to a, uh, a kind of a small town... Uh, into a home where Ellison is hoping to uh, kind of re-kickstart his writing career as a as a true crime writer. Um, it's been alluded, or you you kind of learn, sort of in the opening third of the film that he had a hit about uh, ten years ago, uh, and hasn't had one since. He's you know published a few other novels, true crime books, uh, but hasn't had a hit since then. And this is his. Um, attempt at, uh, sort of reclaiming some of his lost glory, if you will. Um, what, what comes out obviously, uh, before the characters themselves, other than Ellison, <laughs> other than Ellison himself, uh, but what strongly hinted at the beginning of the film and comes out, I don't know, about halfway through is that they have, um, uh, literally moved into the home, uh, where a, uh, a family was recently, uh, brutally murdered. That sort of decision and his uh, culpability in that basically is the is the hook that haunts him and his family throughout the rest of the film. So
0: there we go. The feeling of this movie, the kind of I don't even know if genre is the right word, but uh, this is my first time watching it, and it felt of a. It felt similar to the kinds of horror movies that I used to go see. We used to do this actually with my wife before we had kids. Uh, we would, and in a couple of previous relationships as well, where we would sometimes go to uh, horror movies almost on a dare mm-hmm. to see like if something could scare us. And it was movies like the American versions of like The Ring or The Grudge, that kind of stuff in like the early to mid two thousands. And this movie, certainly in contrast to either Chris or my picks, feels like it sort of fits into that. I, I get, I'm not even sure how I would describe it. Like, move horror movies that were certainly like mainstream enough to be popular and referenced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my experience, I, I, in contrast to to Martyrs, was like there's certainly like moments of tension and and scaring and stuff, but I felt more, I'm a lot more playful with this one sure which is certainly not the word that you used when you were talking about it
1: <laughs> you know no i i agree with you 100 this is a playful film this is a film it's i i i've got to ask i feel like i i, I want to yeah. grill you jeremy because i want to know what scared you about this movie because for me this movie is an. a attempt to start a franchise mm. uh it is it attempt to make mr boogie bagul into a franchise character right down to his 1992 second wave black metal <laughs> you know right. look which is not to say that i don't mm-hmm. like the film i do um and the, in fact there's some very specific, specific things i want to talk about but what scares you about this uh movie?
2: so i would say i kind of have to take that in two approaches one what scared me when I first saw it, and now actually re-watching it, I'm discovering new things about it that really unnerved me. And so, I mean, part of it when I first saw it was I saw it in the theaters with a group of friends and that had that sort of aspect of like, okay, we're all sort of like wigged out and scared together. I think initially what what sort of unnerved me at the beginning and stayed with me through the years was... I went home to an empty house after watching this. So my wife and uh, our, our first couple of girls were traveling at the time. So I literally came home to a house with uh, long, tall windows with reflections, pitch black outside. And I only have my Shih Tzu to comfort me. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, came home and slept on the couch with the lights on uh, that night. Some of my favorite moments in horror movies are little subtle things. And so the moments as Bagul is being revealed are the ones that are, to me, the most sort of unnerving ones. So, like the shot of Bagul when he's digitized part of the footage and it's just sitting on his TV, uh, on his uh, laptop. And then he looks away and the, and the face just turns towards him. I, I love little moments like that. There's a kind of a similar moment in hereditary that made my skin, skin crawl. And so stuff like that just, um, gets me. I mean, I'll, it, you know, it's stuff like the lawnmower, uh, the lawnmower scene. Like, well, I, like when that, yeah. that, that first hit, I was like, Oh, it just, again, it's, it's more heebie jeebies kind of feeling like that's, that for me is, it was part of it. Now seeing it the second time, uh, I, th- I realized, especially doing the music that I do and the stuff that we all kind of work on together, the, uh, experimental stuff, I was really impressed and unnerved by the sound design in this film. Like it's a really, there's a lot of just weird low end stuff going on and he uses bands like Boris and over and Sun, along with the main score and then along with the sound effects of the, sur- the super eight sort of stuff for me it became very much about the auditory experience of the film the second time around
0: yeah i really like the soundtrack stuff too yeah I, uh, yeah it was uh, those are some real good choices i mean especially chris you mentioned the black metal design of yeah uh, of the villain like this feels like yep. it's tapping into sort of the more experimental vein of that genre
1: yeah. Yeah, I, I, I watch this like you in the preferred format of on my iPad with headphones on, which is how you <laughs> should watch all films. Uh and this yeah, that's what so I didn't want to sound dismissive before. No. I, I do have some complaints with the movie, but this movie is geared and engineered to be something different. It is engineered to be an entertainment, which I don't think martyrs is no. as much. No no no. No. This is this is built to create a character, to cause frights and jump scares in a way that that is expertly done and i think this movie the sound design is phenomenal in this there are scenes like the lawnmower scene the opening scene is terrifying Mm -hmm. to watch until you i mean it's still terrifying when you understand the context of what's going on but derrickson and and cargill know how to do it yeah it's 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 phenomenal
2: to start the film with that scene to me is is just bonkers um is that
0: the is that the family hanging scene? yeah i mean that's,
2: that's the how, that's how yeah. the movie starts yeah. um, it's
1: a great start to a movie i mean it's
2: probably one of the most effective moments for me for sure yeah yeah and i would say the the just to uh, to tag on the the other part of this that really kind of uh got me this time around was the uh the character of ellison himself just because there's so, there's so much there that I identify with as a father and a husband now, not that I wasn't a father and husband then, but, you know, having moved my family across the country, pursuing something in academia, trying to get some things off the ground, like, and wondering, like, man, am I just screwing things up for my family? Like, not that we have moved into the house of a murdered family, but there, there are aspects of those sort of aspirations and the sacrifices that he's willing to make. That I totally un, I, 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 I totally track with. And I think that's an aspect of it to, that to me has
1: grown over time uh, with the film. So Well, that's something, yeah, that that's something in particular that um, and I'm trying to recall the movie, where it didn't work. I had I had watched a movie for the Hooptober Marathon where... Oh, I had seen the movie mm-hmm. Bliss um, by mm-hmm. Joe Bigos, mm-hmm. who is one of the kind of up-and-coming directors. He's got a very harsh 80s aesthetic. Yep. And the problem that I had with that movie was the lead character is so despicable that even though it's an incredible performance, I hate the character, so I'm not mm-hmm. invested in the horrible things that happen to them. Yep. The great thing about Sinister... Is it it so much of there are a couple things I really like about it, but the two best things about it are the performances of Ethan Hawke and James Ransom as Deputy So and so. But Ethan Hawke, in particular, he is a dick in this movie and he is an asshole Mm -hmm. in this movie who should have moved his family out a long time ago. But what Ethan Hawke does so brilliantly is make you understand how desperate he is for a hit. Yes. And how the drinking increases and how the little lies increase Mm -hmm. because he just needs to get that rush of another hit. And it's in the, I mean, it's in the broader strokes of him watching his old guest show appearances, but it's also in just the way he so convincingly plies his wife to stay with him as he makes another horrendous mistake. It's a it's a performance that doesn't get enough credit. It's a fantastic Ethan Hawke performance. Yeah.
0: And it's interesting that you uh I'm glad we're here at the point where we can talk about Ethan Hawke because he is one of I mean, I don't think this is an Ethan Hawke problem. I think the character as set up, I have a hard time sympathizing with. And I think for reasons you've kind of hinted at, and Jeremy, your your relation to him on the uh, moving your family across is very interesting, but I can reassure you that you are not anywhere close to making the level of mistakes <laughs> uh, that Ethan yes. uh, makes yeah. in this movie. Definitely, there's the moving your house, moving your family into the murder house, and mm-hmm. not telling your wife. Mm-hmm. Like that feels like I don't want to say people shouldn't pursue their dreams, but like at a certain point, um, m- you know, it seems like he's definitely off the rails. And yeah. then, of course, it brings me to what i i think i've seen some people talk about this occasionally but this doesn't even get into the horror of it all but the the true crime uh nature of his work Mm -hmm. and i think something that someone could probably spend some time writing an article about or whatever is how his true crime works are actually hurting people Mm -hmm. um and that he is in pursuit of uh and like yeah you're right like the fact that he watches his old interviews does sort of like mean like you do hold him at a distance and you do critique his choices I think you're supposed to side with him against the sheriff but I was like no the sheriff is right you're (laughs) you're, you're not good at this like I and again you know all cops are bastards but like <laughs> <laughs> but but he's like you the, the the direct consequences of the not the good book you wrote but the two other books you wrote that were bad whereas that terrible things happened and yeah. and you need to be like held accountable to that and i was like yeah. oh well i don't like cops but he's but, also not wrong right and yeah. it's also ex- like an ex- and that also gets into like weird complicated nature of true crime and all that stuff it's sort of prevented me a little bit from like fully sort of being in his shoes other than sort of like I or I have to like really ignore a lot to sort of be in Ethan Hawke's shoes and again that's not so much a performance issue that's just a you know the setup he was given
2: yeah
1: yeah and I think that's why it it works for me because like you my first impulse is going to be hey My wife and family come first. I'm going to do what's best for them and not sit in this shitty house and, you know, eventually fall into the labyrinth curse of Bagul. But uh, the the great thing about Ethan Hawke is that at least, yes, he makes those shitty decisions that I would never in a million years makes. But he makes me understand in the film why he makes the decisions. Mm -hmm. Which is so hard to do. It's so easy for that type of a role to come out completely despicable. But you see the longing that he has and you see that you you see where he is staging his decisions from. And it makes despite my other issues with the movie, it it, it makes his performance Fantastic, yeah. um, and and also goddamn shout out to James Ransom as Deputy So and So, who I completely forgot, and then when I saw um, I, I saw It Chapter Two a couple of months ago, mm. and uh, he is the highlight of that movie, uh, to the much to the chagrin of much larger stars who were not nearly as good as he is. And then when I saw him in this movie and saw how he is in this movie, he is so set up to be the stereotype, and the and how, watching him rise above that is phenomenal he's so
2: good in this movie he's so good he's great yeah i you know the other thing i would say too about um about ethan hawk and it goes to the, to sort of the deeper themes of the film um and i i have to think that this was not the first time that derrickson has talked about this but when he came to fuller he talked specifically about how he himself as a creator uh, and i he co-wrote it with robert cargill uh, they're you know as as you guys know they're they're writing buddies and worked on Dr. Strange together. but uh, Scott said that uh, the people how did he put it? that the people who are closest to him uh, in his life, family, close personal friends uh, when this movie came out, were deeply embarrassed on his behalf because of how much he is in the film. So the Ethan Hawk character is essentially a, hopefully this isn't overstating it, but that he's basically, he's basically Like a stand-in for him? Yeah, he's basically a stand-in for Scott. And if you look at even the timeline of Scott's career at this point, he had done Exorcism of of Emily Rose, you know, a huge sort of, you know, indie, semi-indie, you know, hit. And then the next movie he did after that was um, The Day That the Earth Stood Still, which by you know from critical acclaim to box office or not critical acclaim but critical um sort of bashing uh and the box office i think was more or less kind of a failure and i think scott you know even talk the way he talks about it says the same thing and so you get even this sense of like okay it's you know it's been like because i think in the i think in the film it's been like 10 years since Kentucky blood, his last big hit. And in by the time sinister came out, it had been like six or seven years or even longer. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's parallels all the way along in terms of the creative process and what he's willing to put his family through. And so for me, again, that just adds some interesting layers of like, what is it that we're actually seeing on screen and the stories that he's telling and that sort of thing, so.
0: Well, I guess I should probably then, uh, on the uh, 100% chance that Scott Derrickson listens to this, that I have no concept <laughs> of if Ethan Hawke is you and shouldn't reflect on you, it's, it's entirely <laughs> a reflection on the performance in the movie.
1: <laughs> so, so let's talk about Scott, uh, Scott Derrickson a, a little bit more because yeah. one of the things that, about him that I really like, even when I don't like all of his films mm-hmm. he has sequences that are fantastic i actually did uh the, the second film of my Hooptober marathon was his next film deliver us from evil mm. which i wasn't particularly keen on but has a sequence that is one of the best horror sequences i have ever seen which is an exorcism that takes place in a prison mm-hmm. And in here, in Sinister, one of the things that I really like, I mean, he has those incredible moments, the lawnmower sequence, the the beginning with the hanging. Um, there are these little pieces that there's a sequence where the ghosts of the murdered children um, constantly oh. weave in and out of... of um, Ellison's vision as he's kind of walking around the house—it's just—it's fantastic. Mm. One of the things that I admire about the film, even as I make fun of it, is he and Cargill create because they're they're they're, they're co-writers on this. They're also co-writers on the sequel, even though Derrickson didn't direct it. Mm, yeah. But they weave this almost Rube Goldberg contraption of a curse that if you were to sit back and think about it, makes no goddamn sense at all. Because let, <laughs> let's let's spell this out. The curse only works if you move away from the house of the dead person that you moved into. So if they had just stayed in the house, yeah, maybe the hauntings would have gotten worse, but they never would have fallen prey to Bagul because the curse only works if you move away. That is so convoluted, it makes no sense for a curse at all. <laughs> (laughs) But and here's the huge, but it's so convoluted that it works in this movie. And I give it credit. I was laughing the whole time when deputy so-and-so calls up and says, you know, it's because you moved. The curse happens when you move out of the house. And I was just like, (laughs) that is brilliant. And it is bullshit, (laughs) but they make it really work because at its heart, this is a movie that is meant for like, to go with a group of friends and jump and scream and have fun at a movie theater. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it has some grotesque moments. But it is so well put together and so well engineered to do what he wants you to do. And I don't think of that as Hollywood product. I think Mm. of that as cinema entertainment, which is completely different and I think more in line with – so many of the movies that I grew up loving, they, they weren't these artistic, you know, statement powerhouses. Mm-hmm. They were movies that preyed on your emotions and worked and 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 they worked on your responses and they worked on the things that unnerve you. And they work on jump scares and they work on subtle. You look away and the, the face in the laptop goes to move right. at you. Uh, he is a master at that. And even when the film as a whole doesn't work. Uh, he's a he. He can ring these sequences that are phenomenal out of it. Yeah. yeah. In case you're listening, Scott Derrickson, I am a fan. Thank you very much. And I really like <laughs> Doctor Strange. Looking forward to the sequel.
0: <laughs> I don't think we need to dwell on it too much, but I think Chris's points actually dovetail into the other thing. I was, it kind of in retrospect, kind of stuck out a bit weird for me. Was the 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 plot threads that seem like so in one case the main setup of the movie seems fairly complicated um but there's other parts of the movie that seem to be given almost no weight or importance at all Mm -hmm. um to the point that it should almost have been removed like his son uh i mean i don't think because his his son has the night terrors but it just it has it there's that doesn't connect to the story in a larger way other than it just scares them right and uh and uh, his wife exists as a person to be exasperated by his decisions like in the end when everyone gets murdered um you don't even see her which again i don't want to see it we talked about that in martyrs but like she doesn't (laughs) even have a she doesn't have a functional role to play Mm -hmm. um in fact i would say even the daughter i think the only key part she has to play is that they had told her don't paint on the walls and then the movie ends with her painting the walls with their blood i was like okay I see that. That was good. Right. Um, but, like, like this is really is a movie about just Ethan Hawke and everyone else almost kind of doesn't exist. Um, which, again, your comments about the possible biogra- autobiographical nature of this uh, sort of, I guess, could see it, but it does sort of, I don't know if there's a way to like rejigger the characters and and plots in a way that everything sort of feeds into the larger story that they're going for because sure. parts of it felt like, why did I watch his son have night terrors because it it's just a random thing that happens,
1: man, but that's a scary scene when he pops out of the box I know I mean and again, that that's I think that's what this movie wants. this is a popcorn movie. It's engineered to be a popcorn movie yeah. And that that terrified me. Just that yeah. sight of him out of the box was horrifying.
2: Well, yeah, and that's another that's another autobiographical thing. I mean, because uh, Scott talked about how one of his boys has—I uh, don't think he does anymore—but when he was younger, had night terrors, and how it was just not just terrifying for his son, but for them as a family, and how even the line when they when he, uh, Ethan Hawke runs outside—that's something that Scott did with his. Sun and, and, and I had, he said that he told Ethan Hawke that he said, you know, look at the stars, look at the stars so that, you know, the sun realizes I'm not inside. This is the reality as it is now. And he just told him that in passing. And then Ethan, and it wasn't even scripted, but Ethan added that in to that scene. So I think there's, it's, in, it's, it's interesting to me that the film doesn't work as a whole for you guys, but it works in pieces, whereas for me, my experience with it is, is sort of a both and, um, but part of that too is like, I mean, just little nuggets of like, like the super eight stuff was actually shot on super eight. Like they yeah. actually shot it on super eight with the music that's in the super eight films playing as the cameramen were shooting them so that they could shoot in rhythm to the music. And then, uh, when Ethan Hawke first sees them, that's him seeing them for the first time, like in actuality, like when he's watching them in the film. So I don't know. It's uh, I, I totally get what you guys are saying in terms of like on a granular level, it doesn't all add up, but yeah, for me, I think it's, I think if you do take the Ethan Hart character as central and everything else sort of revolving around it, in some ways it makes sense that, you know, his interactions with his wife or his interactions with his son would be, sort of uh almost minimal because he's so focused on everything else that he's
1: doing and because he's so self-centered and i should stress that i mean as much as i find these pieces that are kind of not i don't want to say not working for me but are kind of incongruent for me sure uh I, i i i still the i i still enjoy what ha- i i still enjoy the finished product right. i think this is a good film i enjoy it yeah Dis- and and part of my enjoy it my enjoyment is just how ludicrous some of it <laughs> appears to me but I, I i i am all in for these types of movies that are fun yeah. shot well and have some genuine creepy moments and this this movie does do all of that for yeah. Me. yeah
0: yeah and and i will like i will say that the the sequences of him Watching the super 8 footage and like transferring that stuff, that I actually like it not just like the creepiness of the footage itself, but also just the experience of him watching it, of him transferring it. I was just like for some reason I found that like soothing and engaging. I was like, yeah, I kind of like this stuff that that parts of it I I found weirdly compelling. And knowing sort of the 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 details of this that match up, uh, fairly closely with Derrickson's life seems like that does like, I do find that interesting. Like that is like, Oh, that's kind of neat. Yeah. I th- would probably still stand by a, some kind of like reorganizing in a way to like, sure. Link it or, or to like, or even to like, I don't know like how much you would have to like rework the entire concept of the movie to make mm-hmm. the autobiographical nature of it. Let's seem less or seem yeah. more appropriate, I guess. But yeah, no, like there's, yeah. Like I, I had a good time it reminded me of you know
2: movies i used to go
0: see so that yeah. was yeah
2: i think the other thing that i that i liked about the movie when i first saw it was it because i'm not a huge huge fan of found footage movies like to me the ones that i enjoy the most other than this would probably be like the vhs series from a horror film standpoint or maybe um actually the bay did a really good job with found footage but so for me this was an opportunity to kind of dive into that that sort of subgenre and do it in a way that was compelling that I hadn't seen before. I remember thinking that, you know, back in 2012 when I first saw that was like, oh, this is this is a kind of a fun unique take on it. And if I if I remember correctly, yeah. Just from a historical significance perspective, I th- I feel like this was one of the first movies, and I don't remember which came first, this one or Paranormal Activity, but the Blum or Blumhouse sort of approach to horror films, where you know they they you know uh, finance a, a relatively small budget film in the hopes that it pops and becomes a, a a bigger hit. I feel like Sinister was among the first movies to sort of. Uh, exemplify that yeah. model just in terms of so okay. paranormal activity was okay, the year so before
1: yeah. 2007 yeah
2: oh okay.
1: uh, i'm sorry 5 years before right yeah. uh, okay. so maybe 2012 yeah, yeah so. i guess
2: then maybe there were a few others but um but yeah i mean it, it had a budget it looks like of about 3 million and grossed almost 90 million so good day for scott derrickson yeah <laughs> so anyway there we go that's yeah. uh that's a uh, sinister
0: have the last uh, pick for the evening and uh, my pick was 28 days later. It, when we were talking about movies to pick, the idea was around movies that terrified us and um, this is,, uh, well, I mean, we'll do a plot synopsis, but essentially the scene that I remember terrifying me uh, was when their car breaks down in the underpass. And, uh, they're trying to change, or no, it was the change the tire, I think. And, uh, uh, they start to hear the zombies running after them and they're like trying to, uh, change the, change the tire. That is, uh, that was the part that like really stuck with me. Uh, and I don't think I had, I think this was pretty early in my horror movie days. So like, I don't think I really had a lot of experience or like preparation for that kind of
1: tension. Well, John, the good news is you've already triggered anybody who might be listening to this because you refer to them as zombies <laughs> as opposed to the infected. So be ready for a whole bunch of guys to be like, dude, really zombies, dude. Do fast. <laughs> zombies are slow, man.
0: I mean, we can talk about that if you want, but I'll just say up front that anyone who comes at that uh, comes at me with that bullshit will instantly be blocked.
2: <laughs> a bunch of Best internet friend of 20 hearts.
0: years? Don't care. You're done. Like, And I imagine no one will, but like, I'm just... A front saying i have no interest in that so this is a movie that came out in 2002 uh directed by danny boyle who's done a whole bunch of movies a lot of which i like and some of which i have more complicated feelings on but this is probably one of my favorites of his i think and the plot is is fairly it starts off fairly simple i don't actually think it ever gets that complicated but basically a group of Animal rights activists break into a lab where a company is doing animal testing uh, on a, I think it's called the Rage Virus, if I'm not mistaken. And in their attempts to liberate the animals, accidentally unleash the animal, and then we cut to sort of 28 days later, hence the name. Where uh, Killian Murphy wakes up in a hospital, he had been injured, and when he wakes up from his coma, he sort of wanders around... The hospital at first, and then London at large, to find that he can't find anyone, and he eventually meets up with a couple of uh, survivors, and I think there's three of them eventually, and they basically explain to him that uh, if you get infected, uh, you you instantly turn uh, into a out of control. Uh, roid raging monster who will uh, instantly try to kill and eat and do all the stuff that zombies do but faster Um, and then uh, yeah so society has collapsed completely and it's just people trying to hide and eke out meager existences and then sort of it follows them on their it follows them on their trips or their attempts to sort of make a better life or make some kind of life for themselves and we'll go through the rest of the movie later. But, uh, what, uh, what are your guys' histories with this movie?
1: So, um, this is probably my second time. This is great. All of these movies I've only seen twice the when it came out in the movie theater, uh, and when I rewatched it for this podcast. So this is my second time seeing it. Um, I am also a pretty big Danny Boyle fan. Uh, there are a few movies I have some issues with not, Just that I don't think they're great. Uh, This was one that I liked quite a bit. Um, And I remember at the time when 28 Weeksly came later, I said, oh, I think I might even like this one more than 28 Days Later. Um, That might have been foolish because rewatching it again, I rewatched it yesterday. And man, I love this movie. Um, It does so many things and it's so much more than just what it purports to be. Um, And so much of that is because I am now watching it, having known who Alex Garland is and having seen Ex Machina and having seen Annihilation and um, having read um, the stupid, uh, no, it's not stupid because it's a good book, The Beach, which I never seen as a movie, uh, but wound up reading his novel of. There's so much great about this movie. Uh, Beyond the fact that it was my introduction to Killian Murphy, who I love as an actor, uh, and is phenomenal in this movie all if, if all three of these movies have a through line it's the phenomenal acting performances in here um, Naomi Harris aka money penny from the most recent iteration of of, of Bond, she's uh, Selena in this uh, the use of digital video um, in the early days um, as an aesthetic choice as opposed to a merely budgetary one is phenomenal and even though we we kind of joked about it in the beginning um, the fact that there's This is very much—it is a zombie movie in its kind of aesthetic. This is a post-apocalyptic world where there are these— kind of they are still alive, but they are for all intents and purposes, kind of mindless zombies that kind of run and kill you very quickly. But they're using that kind of genre and inverting it. And I think this is so much to Garland's credit as a writer is that uh, you you described it perfectly, John. This is a movie that is intent upon the inner rage within all of us. These are roided out rage filled maniacs that regardless of how it's contracted, it's contracted by saliva or blood and it infects you within 20 seconds, you know, basically, um, this is an extension of, of society's kind of inner rage. And that's what Garland is getting at. And, uh, Ooh. Boyle knows, and he knows all too well because he's done it time and time again in other movies, that the way to explore um, a complicated idea like that is through genre. And genre allows you to deal with these issues in a way that other mediums can't. Uh, and it's a very simple story. It's a very streamlined story. But God damn, it was so effective. And watching it again, I am appalled that I have not watched this more often than I should have. in case it was a surprise this was my favorite of of the three movies (laughs) i mean it's that's probably
2: mine too yeah can i just say uh ditto to all that uh yeah no i mean so yeah in terms of yeah recent uh horror slash genre films i mean for me Sinister and 28 Days Later are up there. So, I mean, it was fun for me to be able to revisit one movie that I was too scared to revisit (laughs) up until the past week in Sinister. And then to come back to 28 Days Later that I have i don't know how many times I've watched it. I mean, a a lot. I've watched it a lot over the years. I am a huge fan uh, of world building. And even though this was not a movie that demanded world building, I love that we got a sequel out of it. I have a couple of graphic novels that are built on the, the world of, you know, 28 days and 28 weeks later. Like you, Chris, I uh, and and you, John, I'm a big fan of Danny Boyle's work. He probably, he made what is probably um, one of the movies that's in my uh, all-time top 10 in Sunshine. I absolutely <laughs> adore Uh, sunshine, probably even more than 28 days later, but 28 days later is, you know, right up there. Um, similar feelings about Alex Garland, similar feelings about, uh, Killian Murphy. This was the first film that I saw him in and, uh, I was just hooked on him as an actor, uh, ever since. And kind of similar to what I said about, uh, the, the sound design and the music of Sinister. I mean, damn! This soundtrack is fantastic. I mean, there's so much good music in here, um, and even and even the lack of things. I mean, when you know, when when it's the the first few reveals of London, and he's walking around and nobody's there. I mean, it's just there. It's such a perfect balance of sound design and score and the soundtrack. Uh, I think uh, I think there's a Godspeed song in here there's a a, a famous granddaddy song that's in here a couple other pieces i mean this thing just fires on all cylinders so it was it was a lot of fun uh to be able to come back to it and revisit it
0: i think for me coming back i thought i because i never i didn't get to see it in theaters i saw it on dvd on my uh standard deaf tv back when i was in college and I thought I had watched it a lot, but I think in watching it for this time, it actually made me question my own memories of like what how the movie existed in my head versus what it actually was and it made me wonder if I had even seen it in the last 10 years because Chris you mentioned the choice to film in digital video I don't think I caught that when I was watching it on standard def DVD quality stuff right it was only this time when I was watching it where I was like man this looks like this looks like I would watch it back in the earliest days of torrenting when a movie was like you know (laughs) 300 megabytes or something and you're like I think I can see a movie like <laughs> and like, wait, did I? And and I, and I had to like check. it's like, no, I actually have the Blu-ray. So like, yeah. unless someone really screwed up the transfer, like this is this is actually how the movie looks. Yeah. I mean, given the especially the opening of the movie, which is or after the the Animal Lab stuff, uh when it's just Killian Murphy walking around London, realizing the breathtaking amount of work and skill not just in the production side of getting those streets cleared but also in the shots themselves and just how like amazing everything looks but also kind of how shitty everything looks like it's it's trying to do something so bold and ambitious on like the cheapest well, I I think it was, I think I saw someone talk about it how it was like a $500 camera. I don't actually know the exact number, but like it's a
1: Canon XL1 digital video camera.
0: So, look up the price of that and then <laughs> and then and then think Danny Boyle's choice for this movie was to uh use that to film what must have been a bureaucratic nightmare of getting the streets of London cleared to shoot that movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, supposedly they only could clear like the section for like an hour at a time. So they had to get everything in in that one hour. And what I had read was that, uh, you know, that was they had to clear a lot of the truck routes that the delivery trucks would be doing. So they would find the most attractive women including, I guess, Danny Boyle's daughter, and they would be the ones to ask the truckers to find alternate routes <laughs> to make it a little bit easier. Um, I, I I went nuts on this last night, like reading the commentary and the documentary. And uh, the interesting thing, and I'm hoping I'm using this word right because now it's late in the evening and we're on our third movie, but the use of the digital video, particularly in those London scenes, adds a, like a... a Verisimilitude. Uh, I, I said that word wrong because I've I've also had a very large scotch, but it adds a layer of realism and authenticity mm-hmm. to the shot that you wouldn't get if it was in film. Uh, it, it's not exactly found footage, although there are shots, especially when he's in the hospital, with like these canted angles where it feels mm-hmm. very film footagey. But but it is kind of like found footage in a way, and and it just makes everything much more visceral and much more. Impactful as you see that solitude when he's walking those deserted streets and when he's picking the money up off the yeah. steps and everything else that happens in those those beginning sequences. Yeah, there are definitely alive.
2: shots where it looks like you're seeing it through just security cameras around London.
0: I think that the digital video stuff, while well, at first it was shocking to realize that the video quality was not an error, uh, the... When I when I finally adjusted to it, I I thought, wow, this is like, they're doing some real ambitious stuff here, and they're purposefully choosing cameras that would sort of make you feel as gross as Killian Murphy feels, <laughs> which is uh, which is real cool. And I actually some of the some of the moments and the plot beats and how the movie actually is structured uh, is is actually different than what I remember. I remember. I think what I remember most is everything up until everything from the first half of the movie um, until they hit the until they hit the military base. Like I for some reason thought that that was a much smaller part of the movie that just sort of happens at the end, but that's actually like a full half of the movie and everything that sticks in my memory about the things I like the most, the somber, the more somber and like build up to intense moments with the uh, with the zombies that's all in the first half and then after that we transition into bad military men time yeah which is actually probably a place for me to talk about sunshine being a movie that is notoriously abrupt in its switch of tone or well i don't know jeremy you might want to push back on that but it feels like in the back third of that movie it swings hard from one type of vibe to another. And I feel like 28 Days Later feels like it is much more better set up yeah. uh, to be, to do its ending than Sunshine is.
1: It also kind of does, though, what Martyrs does in a way that um, 28 Days Later takes... Y- you are led to believe that the most serious threat is the mm-hmm. threat of the other, right? The threat of the zombies coming. Mm-hmm. And then it switches when you get to the military base and you find out that, no, in fact, the greater horror is the horror that... That, you know, that is the evil nature yeah. of humanity, uh, you know. And I, I think it's a little bit more abrupt, a little bit more, in Sunshine. Whereas in 28 Days Later, I think it makes perfect sense to have that switch occur, and to have the military part be as large as it is, because it really is the revolving of um, it is the other, no, it is ourselves. And then when you get to the end of 28 Days Later, this was the thing that I really came away with with the movie this time. Um, At first, it seems like Jim, um, Killian Murphy's character, turns into Spider-Man, and he's like leaping and jumping throughout the army base, literally like like a ninja, a wet, half-naked... Emaciated ninja, um, you know, killing people and then you, you know trying to save the girls and then what you realize is he is the juxtaposition of both. He is the rage infected individual who is not infected um, in those moments and it's only when Selena and he meet that that kind of breaks and he's able to kind of restore back to his humanity there. Um, but but I, I think 28 Days Later does a much better job of balancing those two things and then using Jim and his his kind of come back to you know save the day as the balance between the two evil forces.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I mean I would say going back to John, your question about Sunshine and the comparison between the two. Certainly, just based on all the conversations over the years I've had about Sunshine versus the ones I've had about this, there seems to be a general, there seems to be a broader acceptance of. Where twenty-eight days later goes versus where Sunshine goes,
0: and I say that as a like, like I think you and I disagree on the ending, but we both are big Sunshine fans. Like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. am a fan despite the ending.
1: Put me in there as well, absolutely.
0: And you, yeah. but you are a fan, or uh, unreservedly a fan. Of
1: yeah, the, yeah, I'm, the
2: I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred percent on board with everything that happens in Sunshine, but at the same time, I fully grant anyone who is not on board that i i mean I, I i totally get where why and where you might jump off whereas with 28 days later to your point this feels uh very much it the the shift in terms of what we've been focusing on to what we did then focus uh, in the first half to what we then focus on in the second half for whatever reason doesn't feel as abrupt and i and i do wonder if it's you know, kind of what, what, uh, Chris alluded to with, with martyrs. I, I would make the case that it, it even shows up in Sinister that at the end, at the end of it all, the horror is ourselves. I mean, the horror is what we're, we are capable of, whether it's old French people torturing young women to become martyrs or, you know, uh, a writer chasing, you know, the, the tail of the dragon of success, willing to sacrifice his own family, or in this case, uh, you know, uh, soldiers who uh, are supposed to be defending people and helping people uh, ending up being worse predators than anything. It, it really reminds me where 28 Days Later goes with the soldiers really reminds me a lot of uh, uh, in some ways the mist and what I love about the mist, which is a, a similar thing that that, yes, there there are things that lurk sort of beyond our understanding but the true horror that we visit on each other is what happens in the face of that threat and how we are so quick to turn on each other and to treat, treat each other, uh, inhumanely and in horrific ways. So maybe that's why the shift in 28 days later doesn't feel as abrupt as what happens in sunshine, because from a, from a, if you're a horror film fan or a fan of genre, that's a, uh, that's a theme that is, uh, familiar at least i would think it's not something that that is unexpected
0: well and this is probably uh it a good chance to talk about the the idea of what christopher eccleston and the military people or what what their idea is which is that like we need to kidnap so like i guess we could probably just finish off the rest of the plot which is that the our merry band of survivors uh picks up a radio signal that there's a there's potential help uh if they take this trip and so they go on this trip and my boy brendan gleason unfortunately gets a drop of blood in the eye and uh they have to put him down man can
2: i can i just say i mean that sequence is just heartbreaking
1: can we pour one out for brendan gleason because he is fantastic in this movie he's so good i love brendan
2: gleason
0: unreservedly that dude is that dude is awesome and yeah that's it yeah in everything he does and it's especially heartbreaking to see him to see him not make it yeah i don't think they layer on the menace of the the military people that they meet too much to the point that it's off-putting or like it's too obvious but i don't think there's any point because i think you i think they play it i guess as sincerely as you could expect but there's no point in the movie where i was like this is going to go well, <laughs> and and especially once they explain their plan or their thought, which is that they think society has collapsed and they're going to rebuild it. it It feels a bit it feels a bit off, and especially with like so the moment when Killing Murphy's about to be killed and he sees the plane flying over and he's like, "Oh wait, society has continued to exist." It's a very good moment, but in retrospect, you realize, wait a minute have planes been flying over top of this place the whole time and if so how could these military people think that world that the society has collapsed right <laughs> like you couldn't logic and reason your way to a to a place where i would be okay with you kidnapping and impregnating women that you could never do that.
1: Well, certainly not in certainly not in 28 days, which I think is wonderful of the title. You have to remember, literally not even a month has gone oh, by. Oh, only a, only a
2: February could have gone <laughs> and by. And they have gotten this to this state.
0: Yeah, there's no yeah. like there's no way you could build this in a way where I'd be like, well, of course you have to, you know, force these women to have babies right but it does feel on this particularly like flimsy in terms of their excuse for what they're doing and i even like went through the thought process of if you get infected within 10 to 20 seconds then like there's literally the only people you can infect are people around you and so like if you're thinking if it starts in england then it has to be spread by people. And usually that would be spread through like people getting on planes and stuff. Right. But like you, if you get infected at the airport, you can't even make it to the plane. The plane doesn't take off. <laughs> like, like the plane, um, or if it does, then like the entire plane goes nuts and the plane crashes instantly. The, like right. maybe it makes it to continental Europe yeah. through the channel, but like, again, this is 28 days. So like, there's no, actually no way that the entire, so, the entire planet could have been infected in this amount of time, and so right. them being like, "Well, we have to clear, Like it's like, "Uh oh, mild Like we've had a terrible catastrophe that is localized to England. Uh, let's impregnate these women. I gotta go. It just feels like they're just waiting for an excuse.
2: Right for for sure. Can I? I was oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna throw out one one other thought that I had about it. I I for whatever reason, even though I've seen it multiple times, completely forgot about the beginning. Like in my head. It 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 begins with Jim in the hospital, and so when I rewatched it this time and realized, oh yeah. no, it begins with the rage and the monkeys. Uh, part of me wanted to figure out a way to make this a Planet of the Apes prequel from the British side of things. Like <laughs> you got you know you got the you got the San Francisco version in America, and then you've got this is how it started in England, and then the two met somewhere around the around the world. But yeah.
1: I love so much that it that it does begin with the best of intentions yeah. gone awry. you know it it it's just it, it it is so much about how we think of ourselves and righteous indignation and 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 putting your yourself on this pedestal of, we're going to save these, these terrified animals. And, and it, it just blows up in everybody's faces. And, and there's a wicked sense of kind of, uh, nose thumbing, um, at the whole expense, which is, you know, in, in, in part hilarious because it is well intentioned, you know, despite the fact that they're poking fun of it and, it it just there's so much to dive into with it, with this movie. I'm I'm glad it terrified you, John, as much as it did, so that we had a chance to talk about it for this. <laughs>
0: well, and Chris, your last point, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring it up, but you you just you just teed me up so perfectly. Um, I read a so yeah, I watched it again. I was reading articles and reviews on it, and someone made a point about how they didn't like or they took issue with the fact that it was animal rights activists that caused the destruction of the world or of England, <laughs> if we're being more specific. And I think you, and you mentioned like they were doing the with the best of intentions and it sort of blew up in their faces. And certainly I don't think the activists intended to, <laughs> intended to, to destroy the world. But in, in that person's read on the movie was, oh, it's their fault that this happened. When my initial, and in reading that, my initial response was, Obviously, no, it's the corporation that fucked up these monkeys that are to blame. <laughs> There's no possible outcome to these fucked up monkeys existing right. that is good for humanity. And so I was like, well, again, they, they they don't spend a lot of time on it. It's not necessarily, I would say, like the point of the movie. And so like you could read it either way. But my first thought was, no, nah. like, I mean, certainly they didn't know what they were doing. But like, I don't think this movie is like animal rights activists are bad it's more like oh corporate malfeasance dooms us all which i mean certainly sounds familiar to me. So
1: the the way that it's poking fun to my mind is is that they're doing this with the best of intentions, but they're falling into the same trap that everyone else falls in and that in fact the infected fall into. Is that it's their righteous and indignation and rage over what is happening that causes this to happen. Just as much as it is and it just so happens that they're they're directing this rage at a thing that is going to kill them all. Uh, so it, it just winds up kind of, yeah, the corporations are doing this horrendous thing, but you're, the, the way that you're going about fighting it, uh, it, 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 it just lets loose a larger explosion of the thing that you're exhibiting in the first place, because they are very violent kind of you know, F -F -F you, we're just gonna, we're gonna save these, we're gonna, you know, they look like they have no idea how to even take care of a monkey. I don't know what they were planning on doing. Let's say that they were safe monkeys, and they were just trapped in there doing cosmetic testing. Were they gonna, like, just lead the monkeys out into England and then do what? It looked like they Uh. had no clue in their head as to what was going on. They were just gonna blindly go in and free all the monkeys. And that's that's that blind rage that you know exponentiated a hundredfold is what is the what happens with the infected.
0: Well, and and certainly, I I'll buy. I, I certainly think there's a compelling read to that as being the read of the movie in light of Killian Murphy's reign of terror at the end of the movie, since that's certainly him, basically doing. And, and again, I think with good reason. And I wouldn't begrudge him, uh, you know saving everyone's lives if it costs uh the soldiers lives but um you're right that he certainly does is not uh trying to hire reason with them or anything well i think that's going to wrap it up for uh 28 days later and our main discussion as a whole uh one of my favorite parts of these is always doing recommendations at the end uh for people who want to you know just keep the spooky vibes going in this case. Uh, Chris, do you have uh, do you have a recommendation for us tonight?
1: I do, because as mentioned earlier in the podcast, I just so happened to have finished the Hooptober Marathon and watched 31 movies in the last 31
0: days. Buckle in, he's going to tell um, us about 31 so movies. So, no,
1: <laughs> I'm going to go very quick, and I'm going to just talk through every single... I'm going to talk... Uh, I just want to briefly mention um, two... Um, only two of the—actually, we're going to go three. I, I apologize, because there's three of us here, so I'm going to say three, but they'll be real fast. Three of my favorite movies from the the marathon. Um, the first one is um, One Cut of the Dead, which is—it's um, out now on Shudder, I think, as an exclusive. And it is a Japanese um, zombie comedy, so it kind of goes in keeping with our theme with 28 Days Later. It is the first movie— that really rises to the title of Shaun of the Dead for a horror comedy. Um, It is like nothing I've ever seen. It has twists and turns and shocks and twists like uh, Martyrs. It It is an absolute delight, and it might actually be maybe my favorite 2019 movie right now. Uh, so can't recommend that en- uh, enough. I won't say it's particularly scary, but it is a wonderful movie. Um, what is really scary and frightening, a little bit more in the martyr's vein, but with a stunning visual sense, is a um, another French film called Revenge, which uh, kind of takes the um, rape-revenge... Kind of horrible genre of things like I spit on your grave and and uh, Last House on the Left, and really inverts it and looks at it through a, a very female uh, perspective. Written and directed by, um, oh God, I always mispronounce her name when I try to say it, Coralie. Uh, I believe is how you say her name. She is the writer and director. Um, An incredible performance by the lead, which is Matilda Lutz. Um, And it is uh, about a young woman who is uh, very assured of herself and uh, is uh, taken brutal advantage of and left for dead. And it was a mistake to leave her for dead. Uh, And it is phenomenal, uh, especially from a visual perspective. And then finally, I, I can't recommend this enough, if you like old movies, uh, I got to watch a movie called The Devil Doll. And I want to call this out particularly. It's a 1936 film. And the star of the film is, if you've ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life, an old man Potter. He is the star of this movie. Lionel Barrymore is the star. And he plays a guy who escapes from prison, dresses up as an old lady, and commands miniaturized drone assassins to take revenge on the people who put him away unjustly. I cannot make that plot up. It is also (laughs) written by Eric von Stroheim, uh, who is one of the premier silent film directors uh, of all time, and directed by Todd Browning, who you might know as the director of the original Dracula with Bela Lugosi, as well as Freaks. This was a later film of his from 1936. Um, As far as a film perspective, it might be his best film. And again, just think of Old Man Potter, in disguise as an old lady sending miniature assassin drones to kill people that's what this movie is and it's in 19 freaking 36 and it's a delight
0: that was definitely a sentence you said and uh <laughs> <laughs> i look forward to processing it uh over the next few hours uh
1: well good news jeremy and john i have uh, added it to my plex library so you can watch it interview. you yes. <laughs> yes
0: outstanding uh so for my picks uh my first pick is a also a horror comedy, uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, it's uh, it stars Alan Tudyk, uh, Tyler Labine, and Katrina Bowden are the three main leads of the movie, uh, and the general idea is uh, teens go into the woods where they meet a couple of hillbillies. Um, but the movie actually takes place from the hillbillies' perspective, and everything is just sort of a complete misunderstanding and they totally pull creepy killer vibes off of them, but they're just like absolute sweethearts who just want a vacation in their home. And all of the horror things that happen subsequent to that are complete accidents, uh, up until the point where it's not, but it is, it's real, it's charming and funny. And the, the combination of Alan Tudyk and Tyler Labine is just is just fantastic I always I'm always happy anytime I see Alan Tudyk and I just wish that Tyler Labine was in more things I absolutely loved him in Reaper uh which was a very short-lived was a very short-lived show but I loved him in that and yeah it's it's just wonderful and charming and a good time and you get to see some uh some fun teenagers uh, hilariously kill themselves
1: (laughs) could not have said that better Such a great movie yeah
0: uh, And then the other one, uh, this one's a new one to me. We watched it last night for the first time uh, is David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, um, starring Jeremy Irons at, in a twin uh, in a dual performance as a set of twins. It is I was I had never seen this one before and having been a bit more familiar with stuff like scanners and video and stuff, I th- was expecting to be more grossed out but there's actually only like two to my memory, I think like two big gross out scenes in the movie. And most of it is about much more of the relationship between the twins and how their relationship works and doesn't work. And like the, just how they're awful people and how their relationship deteriorates. And it's much more of a, like someone said, I think I've heard some people call this a more mature movie for like early David Cronenberg, at least. Um, which but like at the very least i like the idea that it is mostly a movie about a dysfunctional relationship um that uh and then just have a couple of really gross body horror shots here and there like um if like those things make it like unwatchable in some cases but like it's actually mostly not about that and and, then and of course just the 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 way that irons is able to convey both twins and when he wants to, you can tell the difference between the two of them. But then other times, he's intentionally of, of, um, obscuring which twin you're looking at. So, and which is like plays into the themes of the movie of like they take on each other's identities and pretend to be each other. Um, it's uh, like from a performance standpoint. From a again, this is like in the late '80s, so like there's a handful of shots where he's acting against himself, and they're both in frame, and it's not like. The back of a head that's clearly a, a double or whatever like they they do some interesting stuff especially for the the time that it was shot in so um that would be my that would be my second recommendation
2: and the keeping of the threes i guess I, I i i thought of three that i would uh recommend um first would be from uh 2015 uh by jeremy solnier so Saul- i hope i'm saying his last name right uh green room hell yeah uh man i love this film it is uh intense brutal uh exhilarating uh, it just it, it's a it's a wild ride love it from a music standpoint because it follows a, a diy punk band basically that gets uh, a, a a bad recommendation about where they should play next and uh <laughs> l- leads them uh to a uh a, a out of the way venue that happens to be run by neo-Nazis and, uh, it just goes South from there. Uh, it's, it's masterful. Um, next I would say another 2015 film called the invitation by Karen Kusama. Uh, it's more of a slow burn and more of a sort of a suspense thriller, but then, uh, once, once, It finally unravels. It just has some fantastic reveals. Uh, It features one of my favorite uh, actors out there right now, uh, Logan Marshall Green. Uh, He is just fantastic in the lead role and uh, uh, also has one of my favorite uh, character actors, uh, John Carroll Lynch, in just a fantastic uh, and unnerving uh, role. So highly recommend that and then my last one would be um uh apostle from 2018 uh directed by written and directed by gareth evans who uh directed two of my all-time favorite action films the raid and the raid 2 but this is uh more sort of like a folk horror film sort of in the vibe of uh you know definitely taking some cues from like uh wicker man um In terms of being set on sort of a a remote English island and uh, sort of a religious uh, cult gone awry, so uh, big fan of this film. It's got some great visuals uh, and a fantastic performance by Dan Stevens. Uh, And uh, yeah,
1: also not afraid to get particularly gory in a couple scenes. Yeah, it definitely
2: (laughs) goes hard in the in that direction. Uh, So very a uh, very solid film there so those would be my 3 what i i think
0: i think i all, all three of your this is a rare case where someone recommends a bunch of movies and i can say confidently that i've seen all of them um but what i really love about what really gets me about the invitation is that there's you're supposed to be on edge from minute 1 yes about that movie no one's under any pretense that this is not weird but they do such a good job of dragging it out and like delaying the inevitable that you start to actually question yourself like what is actually going to happen. And that, but then when it happens, it just flies and just immediately like once the switch turns, they don't fuck around no. and everyone just starts murdering. And I, and I was like, Oh my goodness. I love this movie. It's so good. Yeah. Well, it's and, it's and, fantastic. And, and my experience of John Carroll Lynch was mostly as, uh, uh, from the Drew Carey show where he was, um, oh, Okay. he, he would, he was, uh, supposed to be Drew Carey's brother, I think. Um, and so he was a very gentle, uh, figure in that movie yeah. and, or in that show. And, uh, uh, and seeing him in this context, um, it, he was just very effective at being, uh, you know, the more sinister. Uh, yeah.
2: He also shows up in, I think it's season two of uh, the Channel Zero series uh, in a very, very weird and also uh, deeply unsettling role. So he's he's fantastic in both.
0: Well, I think that's going to probably wrap it up for us tonight. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for, for hanging out with us.
2: Man, thank you. This was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, is uh, is there any kind of things you want to promote, plug, any places you want to point people to? Uh,
2: John mentioned earlier we have started a uh, YouTube channel called uh, Channel Minus Six. It's meant to be a place where it's kind of like a public access TV vibe on YouTube. <laughs> so we're going to be uploading a bunch of random weird video experiments. Uh, if you're someone that doesn't have a place for uh, your own uh weird video ideas hit us up we we hope that this will be sort of a communal channel where we can celebrate uh just weird art and weird stuff uh visually um and then other than that i'd say um uh from the koheleth standpoint we are close to releasing our final ep uh we've been in the process of releasing a series of three eps over the the fall months and so we have one more coming out probably later this month, uh, called uh, Market Well, All Roads End in Death, and uh, so yeah, that'll be, that'll be out uh, shortly. And
0: I'll just say, because of our scheduling and timing, by the time you hear this, this will have already been out yes. uh, pending uh, Jeremy's death and or the end of the world, so <laughs> uh, you should uh, already have uh, access to that, so you go nuts. Uh, Chris What do you want to Point people to These days
1: uh, So right now Also by the time This goes out And I'll pimp it For all three of us The third volume Of our Experimental noise project VIP Will have been released Featuring, featuring Jeremy John And myself As well as Our other partner In crime Eric Heider Who you will probably Be hearing on a future Episode of this podcast um, other than that, you can find my writing over at ninecircles.co. Uh, and, uh, that's probably it for me right now, John. Uh, yeah. So I,
0: again, this, this will be a little bit dated at this point, but the month of October was, uh, absurd, uh, absurdly prolific for me. So I put out the uh, my second album under the Domesquam name, which both of you were involved with, which thank you for that. Um, and then also the Channel Minus Six stuff, which Jeremy mentioned, the VIP. And I want to spell that, for anyone who wants to go check that out, that's VHHP um, and it's on Bandcamp. So VHHP or VHHP.bandcamp.com. Sorry, I had to think about that. Um, But yeah, I think that's going to do it for us tonight. So uh, thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll catch you next time.